In April 1999, all news outlets received a terrifying message. A well-known BBC presenter has been assassinated on her doorstep. Confusion and panic filled the air as the industry, along with the police, scrambled to try and figure out who did this in broad daylight on a wide residential street on someone's front porch. That was more than 20 years ago. The case remains unsolved today. But this year, August, just three months ago, Netflix released a documentary that brought the details of the case back to life. In honor of the Netflix series Who Killed Jill Dando that came out this year, here is the famous full story of BBC presenter Jill Dando and some of the most discussed theories around the world. Today's story is complicated to say the least. This remains one of the cold cases in modern crime that remains unsolved today, and there have been so many theories that explore the possibilities of Jill's murder. So I'm going to walk you through the story as straightforward as possible today. Jill Wendy Dando was born in 1961 and led a very normal yet high-profile life, largely because of her career as a BBC presenter. Now, if you ever heard of this lady, it's probably because her career on television was very much centered through the 90s. One of her most well-known works, and the one she was working on at the time of her death, was Crime Watch on BBC One, which I'll include a snippet of her last episode on it later on this recording. Jill was born in Somerset in November 1961. Her mother, Winfred Mary Jean Hockey, died of leukemia when she was 57, while Jill was in her late 20s. Jill had a brother, Nigel, about nine years older than her, and he worked as a journalist for BBC Radio Bristol at the time. Jill didn't live exactly of a normal childhood compared to other kids. When she was three, it was discovered that she had a hole in her heart and she ended up having to do a heart surgery before she even turned four. But the rest of her childhood and adolescence was quite ordinary. She went to school normal and found that she had a passion for journalism. She then started studying journalism at university. Throughout her life, she's always been quite active in things like theater, and she really liked to participate in plays and take part in just general different theater projects. She also volunteered at a hospital, so this woman was very involved in her community from the beginning, which set her up well enough to study journalism and to become a journalist. She finally had the chance to get a taste of her dream career when she had her first job. She was a trainee reporter for the local weekly newspaper. Now just imagine this. You've been studying journalism for all three years of university and have set your eyes on this career for so long. And it's what you wanted since day one. And I imagine this must have been how she felt, the anticipation and the curiosity in wanting to know what it was really like in the industry. So she managed to get a trainee job at the newspaper her dad and her brother worked at. And after five years as a print journalist, she started to work for BBC. And the BBC is a big company. It has so many sectors and so many different areas, news to cover on. So this opportunity was big for her and everyone. She started as a newsreader for BBC Radio Devon in 1985. 
and later on she got transferred to BBC Southwest, where she presented a regional news magazine program. And then on, she got transferred quite a bit and got to experience different parts of BBC and what it was like reporting in those areas. She was in Plymouth, and finally she had her big break and moved from regional to national television in London to present BBC television news on BBC One and BBC Two from 1986. Now I had shivers just reading this. To be able to climb the ladder from regional to national coverage is a pretty big deal. And I can only imagine all those years of hard work, starting from the very scratch and finally getting that big break and doing what you always love to do. She was on BBC Breakfast Time, Breakfast News, and BBC One O'Clock News, Six O'Clock News, and a lot of side programs like Holidays, Songs of Praise, and a crime appeal series, Crime Watch, from 1995. Now her career was only just starting to bloom. She got to present her own shows and present the national 6 o'clock news on her own, and even featured on a cover of the same week's Radio Times magazine. Her work was so good that she was finally recognized nationally. She was booked to host the British Academy Television Awards in 1999, and it was a brilliant milestone for any presenter working their way up. BBC One even booked her to continuing airing Antiques Inspectors, which was a TV show at the time with antique experts that traveled across the UK. So as you can see, Jill's career was on a high point here, and at this very same time, so many people had been watching her, numerous shows on BBC, and her face was pretty much recognizable by anyone. She worked her way up to fame by being a hardworking TV presenter and had a line of jobs waiting for her. And no doubt a lot of fans that sent her fan letters and chased her shows on a daily basis. And at the same time she worked, Jill also started dating a couple of people from work that put her in a bit of a spotlight. As she worked her way through BBC, she also started dating with BBC executive Bob Wheaton. Their relationship lasted for seven years, from 1989 to 1996. After this, she had a very brief relationship with National Park Warden Simon Basil. But none of these men compared to Alan Farthing, whom she fell madly in love with at the end of 1997. Alan was a gynecologist who, by the way, later on became Queen Elizabeth's personal physician. They met on a blind date set up by a mutual friend, and not gonna lie, they just hit it off right away. Now, at the time, Alan was separated from his wife, and just after a couple months when he's officially finalized his divorce, Jill and Alan announced to the world on 31st of January 1999 that they were happily engaged, and had set the wedding date in September, eight months away. But little did they know that she would never see herself wear the white dress, because in just less than three months later, Jill was found by a neighbor lying dead on her doorstep. The same morning in April 1999, Jill, who was 37 years old at the time, left her fiancé Alan's home and drove alone back to her house at 29 Gowen Avenue, Fulham. 
At this point, Jill and Alan had been co-living for a while, and she barely visited her old house. In fact, she was actually in the process of selling it through an agent. And on that morning, she was just purely visiting to collect some contract documents faxed to her place by her agent. Now, I want to try my best to describe everything we know so far from this point onwards. Because the entire thing happened so, so quickly. From the point she arrived at her place at about 11.32 to when she was shot to authorities being called was a mere 15 minute time frame. So I'm going to try my best to describe step by step, chronologically, of everything that has happened. Jill left Alan's home in the morning and arrived at her place at around 11.32 a.m. According to The Guardian in July 2002, between this time and the police being called at 11.47, it was speculated that as she was taking out her keys and putting it into the lock to open her front door, someone grabbed her from behind. And this person, using his right arm, held her by their arm and forced her to the ground that her face was almost against the tiles on the ground of her front porch steps. And just as quick as it's all happening and before she could even react, the killer took out their gun and fired a clean single shot into her left temple, which killed her instantly. The bullet traveled into and through her head just above her ear, which at this point was parallel to the ground and came out on the right side of her head. So if you imagine a straight line of this bullet traveling, Jill had her head pressed towards the ground and it was a clean single shot that happened quickly in which the killer used one arm to press her down and the other to point the gun straight at her left temple firing the shot. Her body was discovered about 14 minutes later by her neighbor Helen Dobble, and the police were called right after at 11.47 a.m. Now, I don't know about you, but there were a couple things that came immediately into my head when I read this through. A. This was organized and premeditated. Everything happened so quickly to the point where Jill had no time to react and the mere speed of it coming up behind her when she was taking out her keys so quickly at the exact time where she was most vulnerable. And the killer knew this and immediately not just grabbing her but also wrapping their arm around her and pressing her to the ground before she could even react so she was still in shock and couldn't fight back. She didn't even have the time to properly scream and acknowledge what was happening before she was shot dead. This was 100% planned and made to be executed quickly. And B. This person was left-handed. By grabbing Jill with her right arm, this means that their right arm was occupied, hence they'd have to use their left hand to grab the gun. Now, I'm not saying this person couldn't be both-handed, they could, but because of the vast majority of right-handed people in this world, I think it's worth noting, isn't it? This person clearly has a dominant left hand, and just imagine this, you need to do something quickly and smoothly, and I think by default we would use our dominant hand, wouldn't we? Especially if we're under pressure, have adrenaline shooting through us. And the fact that this person has to operate a gun 
which includes pulling the trigger and shooting it in a very short time frame, they have had to use their dominant hand to be control of the situation. So those were the two things that popped immediately into my head, along the fact that this person did not act rashly. It wasn't like, oh, they just saw her on the streets and go- going into her home and decided they were going to approach her in those 20 seconds while she took out her keys and take out a gun to shoot her, which also leads to a conclusion that they knew that she was going to be there. This person knew Jill was going to be there this morning and planned this. And that really limits the circle, doesn't it? Who could have had access to her calendar knowing that she was going to pick up the contract at her old place, which she didn't even visit frequently anymore? And this is where the rabbit hole starts digging. And I just need to pause myself here because I can go on and on about this killer and the possibilities, and I promise I'll dive into some of it in just a bit. For now, let's return to the timeline. After the ambulance arrived at the scene, Jill was taken to the closest hospital, the Charing Cross Hospital, where she was declared dead on arrival at 13.03 British Standard Time. Let's backtrack. Crime scene investigators said that Jill had been shot by a bullet from a 9mm short-caliber semi-automatic pistol, with the gun pressed against her head at the moment of the shot. This meant that the killer was close, pressed against her. The cartridge of the bullet appeared to have been reworked, possibly to reduce its charge. Forensic examination of the cartridge case and the bullet recovered from the scene of the attack suggested that the weapon used had been the result of a workshop conversion of a replica or decommissioned gun. Now this coming bit is important because it turns out that one of Jill's neighbors, Richard, actually heard a scream from his place. But at the time, he thought it was someone surprising somebody, and subsequently he didn't hear any gunshots or large noises made. But if he had gone out to check, he would have come face to face with the killer. I don't think he could have saved her, no, because the shot was fatal immediately. But could he have identified the killer and possibly shortened the time of authorities arriving and sealing the scene? Very much possibly so. But also, another thing was that he heard no gunshot, which meant that reworking the bullet was very much intentional, designed for this specific purpose. Doesn't this add to the theory that this was all premeditated and the killer knew exactly when and where Jill would show up at that specific morning? Richard, the neighbor, did not go out, but he did look out of his front window. And while he didn't realize exactly what happened, he did see the killer that he did not realize then. Later on, he was able to describe the sighting to the police as a six-foot-tall white man aged around 40, whom he saw walking away from Jill's house. Because of Jill being a high-profile member of society, the media went into a frenzy after this. And it was also partly because of this, it led police down on a lot of wild goose chase, with a lot of red herrings being thrown everywhere because of the media fighting for attention and newsworthiness. The Metropolitan Police began a targeted investigation called Operation Oxborough that focused on the Jill Dando case, but sadly nothing ever came out of it. 
no new leads or anything for over a year of investigating. And because Jill was such a well-known person, naturally she knew a lot of people, had a lot of fans, and even had a fair share of stalkers and people who envied her. In trying to investigate this full web of people that extends beyond and beyond, never ending, it's so easy to get lost in it, and so many confusing leads eventually led to nothing. Within six months, the investigation teams had spoken to more than 2,500 people and taken more than 1,000 statements. But none of this led to anything substantial. The police chased leads that seemed promising on the outside, but often these leads hit a dead end. And with no progress after a year, the police focused their manpower on one of these leads. Apparently, just a day after Jill had been killed, police received an anonymous call concerning a, quote, mentally unstable man, end quote, who lived just 500 yards from Jill. This man was Barry George. Barry George's rap sheet was long. He had a long history of stalking women, sexual offenses, along with a number of other antisocial behaviors. Another thing that made this case convincing is that it was argued that a professional assassin would not use a poor quality weapon. So there must be a reason why this specific reworked weapon was chosen and used. So the police therefore soon began to favor the idea that the killing had been opportunistically carried out by a crazed individual. And it was partly because of this assumed profile of the perpetrator that led to the focus on Barry. The police closely monitored Barry, and at this point, with no real substantial evidence, they are sweating and eager for something, anything that will come their way. And with the pressure of the media and spectators, they almost had to make an arrest for a win. So the police searched for Barry George's flat. And this revealed part of a gun holster, a list of firearms, and there were also some clippings of newspapers, and apparently some of them included news media coverage of Jill. There was also a photo of a man holding a handgun and wearing a gas mask. But to this, Barry denied that it was him. So on May 25th in the year 2000, the police arrested Barry and prosecuted him on the murder of Jill three days after he was arrested. Barry was tried, and almost with a sigh of relief from the police, he was convicted because of a particle gunshot residue in his inside jacket pocket. And he was sentenced to life imprisonment in the beginning of July in 2001. But that's not the end of the story, because here's the thing. Barry George had almost zero past connection with Jill, and there were near to none of forensic evidence against him. The gunshot residue in his pocket was just that, a residue that couldn't be proved to have connection to either the bullet used to kill Jill, nor place him at the scene. It could have just been from anywhere. His arrest was mainly justified by the amount of sexual misconduct in his history. Now, I'm definitely not saying that I don't condemn sexual offenses, but the thin case the court had against him showed that they were almost just looking for a scapegoat to compensate in panic of their own ineptness. After Barry was convicted, he made an appeal against a decision. It was unsuccessful. A while later, he appealed again. 
and that came back unsuccessful too. It was after these two appeals that the gunshot residue evidence was classed as discredited forensic evidence and was finally excluded from the prosecution's case. This was when Barry's third appeal went through in November of 2007. This appeal brought forth a second trial, nullifying the first one. This second trial lasted eight weeks, and Barry was successful in the end. He was acquitted of Jill's murder on the 1st of August in 2008. But if Barry George had nothing to do with Jill's murder, the question we all have right now is, who did? And because this case was too widely circulated amongst the media, there are dozens and thousands of theories populated across the internet. Some have come up by well-known journalists, and others have raced by netizens. I'm pretty sure you can dive deep down into the rabbit hole with a quick Google search, but I'm just going to try and lead you through everything in a coherent manner, with the most well-known and widely circulated theories as of right now. Let's start with some of the leads that were included in the police investigation itself. The police began with theories initially about her closer inner circle. They suspected that an ex-boyfriend or someone who used to have a relationship with Jill that wasn't known to the public killed her. But this was quickly ruled out when they interviewed all of Jill's friends and colleagues and checked her phone calls. They also had an extensive focus on her agent, John Roseman, who was also interviewed briefly by the police because he was the person that had forwarded the faxes to her old house. But he was ruled out in the end as well. Jill's ex-boyfriend, Bob Wheaton, was also looked at specifically because apparently their relationship didn't go well towards the end, and it was actually found that Jill had to transfer him 35,000 pounds in order to end their relationship. Now, when interviewed, Bob said that this transfer was a quote-unquote gift and not a loan, and that was basically it. There wasn't any specific motives as to why he would want to kill her, so the police ruled him out as well. There were also speculations that because Jill was involved with reportings of crimes, like her series Crime Watch, this made her enemies and subsequently people wanted her dead because of this. But this lead, although had a relatively reasonable backing, also hit a dead end and eventually the police stopped looking into this. At the time, there were a lot of theories relating to groups in Serbs of Bosnia and Yugoslavia retaliating against the BBC and Jill for her speaking out for aid during wars. And this is a theory we'll expand on in a bit. There's also, of course, the theory of her being murdered by a crazy fan after she's rejected their romantic gestures. And this was backed by her brother Nigel as well, who said that right before she died, she was actually worried about this guy who had been pestering her. But obviously, this lead came to a dead end as the police could neither investigate a boatload of fans nor rule down to one single person who was there with obvious motives. The police also looked at it as being just a wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe the killer mistook her for someone else that was meant to show up at her old place? 
Like I said earlier, Jill at this point had basically stopped living at her old house, so it could be someone else that was meant to be targeted, that was affiliated with the house, and the killer just thought it was the wrong person. This theory again seemed kind of unlikely and was ruled out quickly as well. Now, the only couple theories that had strong backbone was work-related. She's worked at such a high-profile position and reported the Jimmy Savile sexual abuse scandal. She took part in the investigation of a pedophile ring in mid-1990s and found a lot of insider information. People suspected that this could have prompted a revenge attack. But throughout the entire investigation for over a year, nothing substantial was found to back these claims. Since this killer was only briefly seen by the neighbor and he couldn't really describe any definitive features, there was also a mass focus on investigating whether this was a contract killing. But back to the note that she was mainly living with her fiancé. So if someone wanted to kill her, would it not just be easier to do it somewhere within her routine to have max control of the situation? Also, would a professional hitman know that she would one day randomly just visit her old house? This must have been someone who knew her schedule inside out to know exactly what time she was going to be there. And this isn't even the end of it. In Jill's last journey, she made a visit to a shopping center before she got home, and the police got hold of the CCTV footage. And they looked at it day and night, checking if someone suspicious might have been following her, planning their move. But nothing was eventually found in those CCTV footages, and it all seemed normal. She just visited the shopping mall and left. So this person wasn't even tailing her, they just met her right at her house. So that means that that person must have known that she was definitely going to show up there. A lot of theories surrounding this case was about Jill being killed by a professional hitman. They all claimed that Jill was murdered in cold blood by a criminal operating in a drugs underworld or a paid hitman. And because of her popular appearance on a show Crime Watch, covering a lot of criminals and organized crimes, people theorized that this could have very well been a work of one of the criminals she covered. And actually, a former criminal named Noel Smith, who has 68 convictions and is a journalist with Inside Time newspaper for prisoners. He was interviewed in a recent documentary on Jill's murder and said, quote, it takes a certain sort of person, a brutal, sophisticated psychopath, to walk up behind a woman in broad daylight and point a gun into her head. I mean, that is not something you do lightly. She was on crime watch, and a lot of those criminals were in prison. It's quite possible that it was one of them who did it. It looked like a professional job. End quote. And this brings a lot of these heavy speculations of an organized professional job to light. Was Jill killed by someone associated with one of the criminals she reported on? And perhaps this leads to one of the biggest theories linked with organized crime. A popular theory that netizens and authorities both speculated was the Yugoslav connection. 
The Kosovo War was an armed conflict in Kosovo that lasted from February 1998 until June 1999. It was fought between the forces of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, who controlled Kosovo before the war, and the Kosovo Albanian rebel group known as the Kosovo Liberation Army (KLA). The conflict ended when NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, intervened by beginning airstrikes in March 1999, which resulted in Yugoslav forces withdrawing from Kosovo. So the UK and NATO were involved in the Kosovo War, opposing Serbia. And this theory stemmed from the fact that immediately after Jill was shot, a number of telephone calls were made to the BBC and other media outlets claiming responsibility for the killing on behalf of Serbian groups. These calls stated that the murder was revenge for the NATO bombing campaign in Serbia, and threatened further killings. However, after investigations, authorities deemed that these calls were not judged wholly credible and may have just been hoaxes. But despite of this, during Barry George's first trial, his defense barrister Michael Mansfield proposed that the Serbian warlord Arkin had ordered Jill's assassination in retaliation for the NATO bombing of the RTS headquarters. Michael went on to say that Jill's presentation of an appeal for aid for Kosovar Albanian refugees three weeks before she was killed may have attracted the attention of assassination. Jill's case has been escalated and involved in investigations by the British National Criminal Intelligence Service, also the NCIS. They presented a report under her murder inquiry, claiming that it was in retaliation for the RTS bombing, and Arkin had ordered the killing. This report, in specific, also highlighted a possible connection between the bullet used to kill Jill and the bullets used in assassinations in Germany, and they both bear these unique handmade markings on them. In 2019, it was reported that the British National Criminal Intelligence Service had given an intelligence report to the Jill murder inquiry, claiming that the murder was in retaliation for the RTS bombing and Arkin had ordered the killing. The report highlighted a possible connection between a bullet used to kill Jill and the bullets used in assassinations in Germany. But that was about it. Because of how vast this theory was, it didn't really help to convict anyone specifically. You're talking about people from a lot of countries involved in a war that lasted for over a year. So this theory, although some people are convinced and others aren't, kind of just trailed away. Do you believe in a possibility of this theory, though? In 2002, a journalist called Bob Waffenden was convinced that a Yugoslav group was behind Jill's killing, and he even contested the police's grounds of dismissing the case openly in a lot of newspaper articles, outrightly voicing his opinion. Although this didn't do anything major, it shows that in a world of journalism, people do still believe that this was a warning sign and that Jill was indeed killed by war criminals. Now I can't help but think about the whole mediatization in relation to the killer. They knew they were killing a high-profile person, and I can't help but think about the fact that 
if this wasn't a retaliation or revenge or some sorts and that they were just seeking the thrill of fame and we talked about clinical psychopaths before in these recordings but seeing the wide coverage of their quote-unquote success and trophy while it's not being caught at all would be a thrill to them knowing that their work was being recognized but they've gotten away with it Cold case reviews by the police after 2008 concluded that Jill was killed by a professional assassin on a, quote, hard contact execution, end quote. Pressing the gun against her head would have acted as a suppressor, muffling the sound of the shot and preventing the killer from being splattered with blood. At the time of her death, Jill was among those with the highest profile of the BBC's on-screen staff and had been the 1997 BBC Personality of the Year. Her show Crime Watch ended up reconstructing her murder in an attempt to aid the police in the search for her killer. And here, I'm just going to play a little bit of Jill's last episode of Crime Watch before she died as a tribute and to give you a sense of what this woman was like professionally. This was the last episode that she recorded air to the public. Just to put the date of this robbery into context, it was uh, March the 15th, which I think was the day before the Cheltenham Festival, which suggests that perhaps more people than usual would have been in the area. That's right, a lot of people come early for the Cheltenham Festival, which starts on a Tuesday, and the area where the robbery took place is on a main route into Cheltenham, so people in fact may not know that they saw something that could in fact help us. Mm, well, jog their memories, yes. Now then, what about the cars that we saw? We saw them being bought. Give me a little bit more information about them, the beige one. That's right, the person who bought the beige car is middle-aged, around 45 perhaps, with an Irish accent and very scruffy in appearance. And the, the red Vauxhall? Also very scruffy, middle-aged if not older, and this person possibly had a Birmingham accent. Now bearing in mind these are bought on the Saturday and the robbery occurred on the Monday, also you want to know what happened to those cars in between, in between times? Very much so, they may well have been parked outside somebody's house, somewhere where these cars aren't normally, and if that's the case, please phone us so we can see if it will provide us some links as to who committed these crimes. Now the third car that was used in this wasn't obtained locally, was it? No, the dark BMW was in fact stolen from the Ely area of Cardiff at the end of January. Now that car may have been in Cardiff, it may have travelled around, and in fact we don't know where it was from the end of January right through to the middle of March. Bearing in mind that the number plates you see there are false. Yes they are, and the owner of the real BMW bearing that name that number plate has been ruled out and lives in the bath area. So just another interesting fact is I think that one of the uh, one of the wheel, wheel trims was missing from the car, wasn't it? Yes, it was, and on a smart car that might be quite distinctive to somebody. Now, what about the, the men seen in the cars on the day of the robbery? Do you have any more information on them? And that was a snippet of Jill's last episode of Crime Watch, and that was a conversation between her and another woman talking about a robbery that had happened and the getaway car. Jill's funeral took place on 21st of May, 1999 at Clarence Park Baptist Church and she was buried next to her mother in Ebden Road Cemetery. Her father inherited all of her estate. Jill's co-presenter Nick Ross proposed an academic institute in her name and together with her fiancé Alan Farthing raised almost 1.5 million pounds. The Jill Dando Institute of Crime Science was founded at University College London on 26th of April 2001. 
on the second anniversary of her murder. A memorial garden was designed and built by the BBC Television Ground Force team in Jill's memory, using plants and colors that were special to her, and was opened on 2nd of August in 2001 in Grove Park. The BBC set up a bursary award in Jill's memory, which enables one student each year to study broadcast journalism at University College Falmouth. In 2007, Weston College opened a new university campus where Jill studied. The sixth form building has been dedicated to her and named the Jill Dando Center. Antiques Inspectors, one of Jill's latest projects, ended up being the final series recorded by Jill, and a final episode was actually completed just two days before her death. The program was cancelled after she was murdered, but later on it was decided that it would continue airing as a tribute to Jill. The final episode was aired on 24th of October. Jill's brother, Nigel, later on retired in 2017. But he never stopped looking for clues of his sister's killer, and till this day, he never stopped believing that someone, somewhere out there, had seen something and knew something. Because there must have been, right? It was broad daylight on an open road residential street. Someone must have seen something that was slightly out of normal. Maybe they didn't realize what it was then. Maybe they still hadn't realized now but someone out there knows something. Nigel said, quote, they'll find my sister's killer, end quote. And when the time came along that he had the opportunity to be part of the Netflix documentary that was going to bring Jill's case back into the spotlight again, he took it. And the story ends here. There's no satisfying ending of me telling you there's been a lead, because there hasn't. There are theories out there, too many to count, and too many to follow on. So I'm going to end the story with a sparkle of hope. In 2000, the Jill Dando Bursary, which aimed to support students studying journalism, was won by its first beneficiary, Sophie Long. Sophie ended up studying at Falmouth College through this scholarship and is currently a successful news reporter at the BBC. The bursary ends up touching the lives of many others and supported them through studying journalism and now becoming successful journalists working at the BBC. This bursary has provided many opportunities for others. And whilst I can't speak for Jill herself, I believe it is what she would have wanted to. Thanks for sitting here with me today. Until next time.